I honestly, if I had been her, I would have dissociated straight out of my body. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it would have taken me a while to to get tethered back to Earth again. I'd be in a fugue state. I would not remember that review. Like I no. would just black out and I would not I would have no I memory would. of it. Same. Hello and welcome to Lawyers Behaving Badly. I am Jennifer Judge. And I'm Karen Delaney. And Karen, you are coming to us live from the safety of buckled into the driver's seat of your car this week. (laughs) (laughs) I know our housekeeper is here and this is a day she's not normally here and you and I don't have another day to record. I'm out in my car and I am buckled into my car because (laughs) my car is on and I don't know how to make it stop chirping at me about my seatbelt being unbuckled. So safety first in my driveway. No worries here. One of my neighbors has already left their house and I already had (laughs) my headphones on and my laptop was in my lap and I like just simply did not make eye contact with them. I was sort of banking on the window tint being dark enough that maybe they just wouldn't (laughs) notice me. (laughs) So this is so embarrassing. See, at least when I did it, I was in the safety of my garage. Like I had the back open, the garage door open, so I didn't like kill myself. But at least I was in my garage, so no neighbors could see me. So I had that at least little bit of confidence that I had a private shame. My neighbor just walked out again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the thing, I clearly didn't think this through because we have a bunch of junk on my side of the garage that's just waiting to go to the dump. And I was like, I don't feel like moving all that stuff around just to pull my garage in. The other thing is, and this is more than anybody ever needed to know about me, but our house is a fairly recent build. And for some reason, despite the fact that everybody is driving around gigantic trucks and SUVs, this garage is clownishly small. So it sucks (laughs) even getting my SUV in there. And I was just like, I don't even want to mess with it. But I guess the cost of that decision is that my neighbors are going to think I'm just an unhinged nut sitting in my car with headphones on in the driveway (laughs) of my own house. Well, we love our dedication to our craft here. This is our MacGyver make-do spirit for this podcast for (laughs) y'all. This is the culmination of years of in-house practice where you have to cobble together a solution with your extremely limited resources. (laughs) And here we are. You know what? It's probably going to work. Is it the Rolls Royce of recording situations? No. Is it functional? Also, probably no. (laughs) (laughs) This is the equivalent of getting the question when you're in-house and being like, I don't know. I'll look up. I'll look it up for you. And then immediately Googling it because you don't have any type of subscription (laughs) research service. And you're like, don't fail me now, Google. I know. Surely I'll find some law firm that's written a blog post about this. Fingers crossed. Is there nothing worse when you Google, this is off topic, but there was nothing worse than when you would Google some law firm thing about a topic you were researching. And then there'd be like, this is a really complex subject to talk to your lawyer about it. And I'm like, no, I need you to tell me I am the lawyer. (laughs) I am the lawyer. And I need this advice for free because I don't have the budget. (laughs) I don't have the budget to pay somebody else for it. (laughs) 
Oh, gosh. Well, good luck to you in your car. I am safely in my office this week, but we are still going through renovations. So the painters could arrive at any moment. They told me they were like, we promise you're going to be on work calls. We'll be quiet. And I was like, please, please do what you need to do. This is not important. We can be okay. (laughs) At least painting seems like it should be a little bit of a quieter endeavor than demolition. Yeah. Jackhammering tile was a loud day. Painting hopefully will be less loud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have our hot topic for the week, and it's going to be just a kind of quick one. And I think we have not discussed this even a little bit. So I'm curious if you're aware of it. Have you heard about the recent controversy surrounding the head of UFC, Dana White, recently? UFC, is that some fighting thing? Yeah, the universal fighting. Is that like MMA or something? Yeah, it's MMA stuff. Okay, no, I absolutely have not. You may be shocked that I... (laughs) have heard nothing about this. <laughs> I've known you. I think we determined, what, 17 years now. Mm-hmm. So this is not shocking to me um, <laughs> that you're not plugged into the UFC fighting uh, goss. Yeah. But on New Year's Eve, Dana White is the president of USC. And he was at a club in Cabo San Lucas with his family. And TMZ published a video of him and his wife getting an argument in the club. Mm. And she slaps him and he turns around and hauls off and slaps her across the oh, face. Oh, I did see this, but I didn't realize who he was. I was just like, oh, there are a couple of really drunk people in Cabo, including people who physically abuse each other. Okay, continue. Yes. Yes. So that's him. And if you aren't aware of who Dana White is, he looks like what you might think the president of the UFC or an MMA fighting organization to look like. He's a jacked dude, bald. So anyway, this was published by TMZ. It goes viral. Everybody's talking about it. He recently gave a press conference, I think late last week, about what happened. And that's kind of what I want to talk about. Because for one thing, it didn't go quite as viral as people expected it to. And it Mm -hmm. turns out that ESPN, which if I'm not mistaken, has either an investment stake or it has obviously rights to discuss UFC fights. They instructed all of their writers not to write anything, quote, incendiary about this and what happened. And so basically put a somewhat media blackout on this. And so, yeah, so a bunch of ex-ESPN reporters have come out and basically said, this is absolutely, we can't be doing this. This is something that we need to be talking about. That's hit the news. What would be incendiary to write? Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, I mean what what yeah. is it exactly that we think is incendiary? Because it sort of seems like maybe even just mentioning it. Is that like the message, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the unspoken message is my understanding. Wow. Because how do you give a guideline on don't be incendiary? You could be like, oh, it happened. That's bad is the bad part. The incendiary part. Yeah. Right. What do we consider incendiary. Okay, yeah. So he gave this press conference and basically said there's no excuse for it. And so people asked him, well, what do you think should happen to you as a result of this? You know, you're president Mm -hmm. of UFC. And he said, basically, nothing. It's something that I'm going to have to live with every day for the rest of my life. And basically said that's punishment enough for Mm -hmm. him. His guilty conscience. Yeah, exactly. And then he said, well, what do you think UFC should do to you about this? And he said, well, nothing, obviously, because if I am put on leave or something like that, that hurts employees, not me. So (laughs) it would be, yeah, exactly. It would be a bad thing if I were actually put on leave. So I don't think anything should happen to me as a result of this. My internal struggle is too much for this to happen to me. 
he's like, weird thing. I think any consequence for me would be bad. <laughs> yes. And I wanted to take this kind of as a jumping off point because it seemed very emblematic of obviously things we've talked about in this culture. But as I was looking for current hot topics to talk about, it seems like recently in the news, I cannot see any story without seeing something about a man or a husband or a boyfriend harming or killing his wife, his family, someone. It seems like, and maybe it's just because there's more in the news, but it certainly feels like there has been a lot of news about this recently. Uh, And I've noticed it to the extent that it bothers me to even see it this much in the news right now. Yeah. We're probably gonna have to put a written trigger warning on this episode. That's a good, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. But to your point, and to take this on a much more serious note, I'm with you. I don't track what are these guys called? Family eradicators? Or is there some mm-hmm. other news? Is there mm-hmm. some other term for it? I think it's family eradicator. Obviously, I don't track or have a reason to track that. But it just seems like within the past, I know there were, I think, three men who wiped out their entire families within the past week alone. Mm-hmm. There was the guy in Utah who killed six kids and his wife, his wife's mom. And there were two other guys elsewhere who killed their partners and their kids. And then we know because there was a group that a lawyer mom group that we're involved in where one of the members was murdered along with her children by her then husband from whom she was seeking a divorce. And that seems to be the triggering event. A common trigger. Yeah. Is I'm about to leave, which is the most dangerous time for any domestic violence victim is when you're leaving the relationship, which is one reason that a number of victims will never leave their abusers is because it's, it's potentially too dangerous, but Yeah, it just seems like there's been such an increase of these kinds of incidents in the news lately that it's a little bit scary. And you know what's also really scary is with the guy in Utah, number one, his family wrote just this extremely glowing Mm -hmm. obituary about him and also how they're looking forward to his kids and wife being reunited with him in heaven. So that's extremely dark. But then also they've been portraying this, even though other people who knew her have come out and said, yes, he was extremely abusive to her. She was trying to leave him. They have portrayed him as just some guy who snapped. And I saw somebody say on Twitter the other day, and I think this is a good point. Like, do you know how terrifying it is to everybody else who's in a relationship with a man who seems like who's not abusive that, oh, you just might snap and murder your whole family and yourself. One day he might murder, what, seven people? I mean. (laughs) No, that's not, that is a way of erasing domestic violence and erasing that these events are preceded by a pattern of, of abuse. So yeah, I mean, just wild. And then this guy beating up on his wife, not a good situation. It's not a good situation. And it just, this one caught me because there's no being held to account for it. And I think, you know, we talk about second chances and everyone can make mistakes. But I think for someone to be entitled to a second chance and forgiveness, they actually have to do the work of recognizing what went wrong and improving themselves. You aren't entitled to a second chance. You actually have to do the work to earn forgiveness, whether it's from your wife or whatever. And who knows, maybe he did. I doubt it. Maybe he did. But I think it just runs into this narrative of, well, you don't let these guys screw up even a little bit. And the answer is, well, they screw up. And then what harm is going to befall them? Literally nothing here. Like some articles are written about him, but he's not going to even hold himself for account at work 
ESPN's not going to hold himself to account. It's not letting its writers hold him to account. What's the harm that's even going to befall him is something like this. Well, and let's go back. You said screw up a little bit. Getting into a drunken, <laughs> violent altercation is not a little screw up. I mean, mm-hmm. there are lots of personal steps you might take after something like that, like reexamining your relationship to alcohol and seeking therapy for your anger management and emotional self-regulation problems. But it's not a little screw up. And I don't have a problem with somebody losing their job, especially in a high profile situation like that. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing if you're like working at the gas station and you get into a drunken brawl on a Friday night. But if you are the leader of a high profile, very visible organization, I don't have a problem with higher standards for you, especially because your reputation and integrity are tied very visibly to the reputation and integrity of the organization itself. This is not some line employee that we're talking about. Exactly. And if you enjoy the trappings of fame and money and celebrity and people knowing about you, well, then that's the dual edged sword because people are going to know when you screw up. So yeah. you're going to be held to you know a higher standard and that's just the way it is. Yeah. Oh, and I just remembered the term is not family eradicator, it's family annihilator. I used the wrong Thank term. you. Yes, so, that's what it was. What a happy start it was to a our happy normally start. very lighthearted <laughs> podcast. It was, hey guys, I, it was just <laughs> murder. <laughs> it was one of those things where I literally was scrolling through the legal Twitter feeds of legal news, and all I saw were family annihilators, domestic violence, family violence, and you just can't avoid it right now. And it was... It's been on my mind. So retroactive content warning. We'll put that in the written description. We'll put it in the written description. Um, I, I think we also learned last week, two episodes back, we also learned that in podcast content warnings are not always sufficient. Because people are, I mean, like I do the same thing when I listen to, to podcasts. I'm mm-hmm. doing other stuff and somebody might miss it. So we will put that in the notes. And exactly. <laughs> just let people know we're starting out with a real lighthearted discussion today. <laughs> So on that happy note, we'll transition over to you for a much more lighthearted and fun and funny discussion. Well, now I feel a lot of pressure, but you may have heard some of this story because I tweeted about this, but it turns out, I think it was actually quite some time ago. I didn't realize how much time had passed because again, one of the reasons we started this podcast is I'm always interested in attorney misconduct. And I just happened to randomly stumble across this case where an in-house attorney sued her employer and was later accused of serious, serious misconduct in the litigation. And of course, you can imagine I was extremely interested in that. But I think when that happened, when I first stumbled across it, it must have been a few years ago. And I knew that she'd been accused of this misconduct. I did not know the outcome in court. And that's since the court has since ruled on that. So We are going today to New York. Our main character, I will call Jane. There's been a little bit of news coverage about this, not much. Jane started practicing in the 1990s. Jane likes hot yoga, running in nice weather. She also started out her practice at some fancy, very big name firms, and she eventually went in-house also to a very prominent, well-known company, And in 2008, she joined a company in New York that we will call Chemco. And she joined Chemco as corporate counsel. Chemco is headquartered in New York, but it is owned by a gigantic Japanese conglomerate. And 
as best I can tell, Chemco makes a lot of fancy chemicals used across a variety of industries like polymers, resins, 3D printing materials, and they had started to dabble in pharmaceuticals as well, I think. And the way that operations worked there and management worked there was, yes, they had a corporate structure in New York. They had a CEO, general counsel, all that kind of stuff. But they were very, very, very closely managed by the Japanese conglomerate. And so every decision essentially has to be run by the business people in Japan. Jane's corporate counsel job involved providing legal advice to a number of Chemco affiliates in the United States and a handful of other countries. And things seemingly went very well for her for a long time. She received glowing reviews. And after a few years, the company promoted her to assistant general counsel. The trouble started in 2015. Jane has been at Chemco for seven years at this point. Chemco's then general counsel, Donna, let Jane know that Donna was leaving the general counsel role at Chemco to become president of the company. So good for her. The dream for a lot of in-house counsel is to actually stop being in-house counsel and move to the business side. (laughs) Go springboard yourself to the company. Yes. So good job, Donna. But Chemco needed to fill the GC role. And Donna told Jane that Chemco was promoting Jane to acting GC and chief compliance officer. Here's what Jane did not know. Donna was not happy about this. Even though she is the one who initially hired Jane, she's the one who promoted her to assistant general counsel. She originally wanted to seek an outside candidate for general counsel. But because everything has to get approved by Japan, the higher ups there didn't want to spend the money on an external search and told her, pick an internal candidate. Like you have three assistant general counsels, pick one. Mm -hmm. So from Donna's perspective, Jane is basically the least bad of the bad options. And she didn't think Jane was ready for the role. She didn't think that she managed her frustrations well. She couldn't juggle a lot of work. But the conglomerate in Japan has given her this directive. So she's like, well, let's give Jane 12 months and see if she grows into the job. But I'm not going to give her the general counsel title. I will give her the title acting general counsel. Thoughts? (laughs) Acting general counsel is, it's a way to immediately undermine someone's authority and set them up for failure when you're putting them in a position like this. I mean, you certainly are indicating that it's temporary, right? Mm -hmm. The other thought that I had was the general counsel salary was $300,000. So even assuming the outside search fee was like 20%, you're talking 60 grand. Yeah, which is not, that is not a lot. It's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket when you think about the things that your general counsel handles, the level of trust that your business people have to have in that person, the knowledge, like the soft skills that they need to work with your business folks. $60,000 is a drop in the bucket. And I tell you what it's also a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of money you're going to spend on legal fees. Yes. (laughs) Dealing with the fallout when this relationship crumbles because you promoted somebody you didn't think was appropriate for the job. Yeah. When you said that they told her she had to promote someone from under her, I thought to myself, well, that's just cutting off your nose to spite your face to say expenses. I mean, that's a very expensive decision in the long run. Jane became acting general counsel in April 2015. By June, so two months later, Donna is already in HR complaining about Jane's work as acting general counsel. 
Jane's sloppy. She's too defensive. She responds to emails without reading them all the way through. So she frequently has to backtrack. She has personality issues. There's also a huge kerfluffle brewing within the department because Donna had a legal assistant that worked with her for years and years. Donna did not take this legal assistant with her to the president's office. This legal assistant had to stay in the legal department. I'm just going to speculate the legal assistant was not happy about that. (laughs) She apparently never liked Jane. The legal assistant and Jane are like oil and water. And according to Jane, this assistant is just pissed that she doesn't get to be assistant to to Chemco's president and she's stuck here in legal. She also has attendance issues. And then she tells Jane, hey, I've been diagnosed with a serious illness and I'm going to need to be out for medical treatment. Oh, gosh. You and I are both laughing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because we know we've both dealt, I have dealt with this situation so many times where you have an employee who has performance issues or attendance issues. Then they tell you that they're going to need like ADA accommodations Mm -hmm. or they'll need to take intermittent intermittent FMLA FMLA leave. And then you're stuck dealing with, okay, well, how can I and how can I discipline them for issues that are unrelated to the leave? And how risky is that? Am I just building an ADA or FMLA retaliation claim for this person? And it's always, always with some inexperienced or manager that isn't up to snuff that doesn't do a good enough job managing the performance at the outset either, usually. Right, there's never documentation. Never documentation. And all of a sudden, they're like, well, we need to document all her stuff. And I'm like, the day she asked for FMLA leave? No, I think not. (laughs) Right, no, that won't look like retaliation. Don't worry. (laughs) The assistant had a litany of complaints about Jane, including Jane's a micromanager, Jane doesn't respond to my emails fast enough, and, quote, this may sound petty, but she constantly eats in meetings. (laughs) Over the summer 2015, things completely devolve between Jane and the assistant, and the assistant files a formal HR complaint against Jane. And the gist of the complaint is the the assistant believes Jane wants to fire her for taking time off related to her medical issues. And it looks to me like Jane's just trying to manage maybe a bad situation that she mm-hmm. inherited, right? I mean, mm-hmm. somebody who doesn't necessarily feel like they have to comply with attendance policies, but who now also has these medical issues to yes. deal with. By August 2015, Donna, who is president of the company, I remind you, is like, I've had enough of this. I need to get rid of Jane. I'm done. I'm done. She says there have been complaints about Jane's attitude and style. Her style results in a lack of trust. Donna's having to spend a lot of time managing this whole situation and the situation between her former assistant and Jane, which you can imagine is exhausting and not where you want to be spending your time as president of the company. Jane's relationship with Donna also totally crumbles. Donna emails Jane around this time to say, hey, we need to meet to discuss our relationship and how you're communicating. And she says, quote, I am at a loss as to how to work with you and communicate with you. (laughs) What do you do here if you're Jane? Because I think I'm shaping up my resume. (laughs) Yeah. If if I'm getting that email, I'm putting out feelers for new jobs because yours, there's no climbing back from that situation usually in an office job. I think it's extraordinarily difficult to come back from. And I would be submitting resumes on LinkedIn same Mm -hmm. day, probably. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I know where this is going. But yeah, around this time in August 2015, 
Donna has lunch with Nick. Nick is a former Chemco attorney. He started out his career actually as a paralegal at Chemco, then went to law school, came back, was at Chemco for a while, worked with Donna. She held him in very high regard. He's since gone to another company and he's taking her out for lunch now to celebrate her birthday. Donna complains that she's having trouble with the department and she makes this she says kind of offhand remark about, oh, it's too bad you wouldn't be interested in coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Meaningful pause. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of those like, if you think I'm joking, I'm joking. If you think I'm not, I'm not. not, (laughs) (laughs) Which is it? You tell me. (laughs) At which point Nick, of course, is like, well, for a GC role, I might be. No way. (laughs) Right. Shocker. It's like, sure. So shortly after this, Donna tells the higher ups in Japan that she thinks they should hire Nick to replace Jane. And she wants to fire Jane. She just wants her gone, doesn't want to deal with her. The higher ups in Japan are open to hiring Nick, but at least one executive in Japan thinks that Jane should be demoted back to assistant general counsel instead of fired. What are your thoughts on demotions? No, that is talk about setting up for failure. There is no way. Yes. Eight demotions. No, I mean, there may be the rare, rare circumstance where demotion works for all the parties involved. And that's usually where everybody recognizes that it's good for the employee, including the employee. Right. I think it's where the employee is like, get me the fuck out of here. I hate this job and I want out. Yeah, exactly. That might work. Um, that might but work. you you going into an employee and being like, listen, we know you're trying hard, but you're not cut out for this. So we're going to bring in a new boss and you're going to report to them is just it's going to be failure all around. Yeah. And here you have an in-house attorney who, by the way, handles most of the employment work for Chemco, <laughs> who you claim has been exceptionally difficult to work with. You are replacing her with a man. How do you think this is going to go? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Donna offers Nick the general counsel role, and it's not acting general counsel. It's straight up general counsel. There is no starter period. It is you are going to be our general counsel. Oh, that's even worse. (laughs) (laughs) They initially offer Nick the same salary that Jane was making as general counsel. I was just about to ask, are they also paying him more? Okay. (laughs) Well, good job. But then Nick is like, hey, I have pharmaceutical experience. You're trying to get into pharmaceuticals. You should pay me more. By the way, you're offering me a car allowance. I don't want that. I want more money and a bigger bonus. And I also need a signing bonus to repay the retention bonus, some retention bonus that he had with his previous company. So he ends up negotiating a salary that's higher than Jane's with, I think, a bigger bonus. And he gets this signing bonus. So eight months into the full year that Jane was supposed to have, Donna tells Jane, look, we're bringing on Nick as a new general counsel. You're going back to assistant general counsel. Do you have any guess as to how she delivers this news? Oh, no. Well, I mean. You're never going to guess. You're never going to guess. It's so bad. I'm never going to guess. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, she can't stand Jane at this point. So it's not going to go over well, no matter what. She does it in a mid-year performance review. No. <laughs> Jane has had, again, up until this point, Jane has had very good reviews. So Donna writes her a shitty review 
and says, I can't trust your judgment anymore. And she gives a handful of examples in the review of there was this litigation where I don't think you kept me informed. There was this pension issue where I thought you exhibited poor judgment. I thought you exposed us to an ADA retaliation claim related to my former assistant. And then some other instance where, you know, I thought you didn't approach things in a way that inspired confidence. Congratulations. Here's your mid-year performance review. You're being demoted. Oh, my God. Thoughts. Um, <laughs> Is this how you advise people <laughs> to no. go about? <laughs> a little bit. And this isn't even legal advice. This is just management advice. A review, either full year or mid-year review, should never be a surprise to the right. employee. There should never be a surprise there. It should Every review should be as we discussed, as we discussed. Yes. Here's an example we discussed, as we discussed. So yes. to spring <laughs> demotion a new boss on someone in a review in addition to all of this, I mean, they basically wrote the EEOC charge themselves with all of their actions. Like, I would march so fast to the EEOC office with the after this <laughs> review. <laughs> well, it's like, there was an attempt to document, yes. but it was just a spectacular cataclysmic failure. And can you imagine going into a mid-year performance review and thinking like, all right, things aren't great, but they said they're going to give me a year. I think I can do this. We're going to turn this ship around. And then, surprise, <laughs> you're demoted. And we're hiring your former colleague to replace you. When you have employees, perception is reality when it comes to believing they're being discriminated against or harassed or retaliated mm -hmm. against. Like her perception here is 100%. Oh, I'm they're here. They hired a man and they didn't even give me what the shot they told me to. And I'm walking into this buzzsaw of a review finding out that I've been right. demoted. It's insane. I honestly, if I had been her, I would have dissociated straight out of my body. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and it would have taken me a while to to get tethered back to earth again. I'd be in a fugue state. I would not remember that review. Like I no. would just black out and I would not, I would have no I memory would. of it. Same, same. <laughs> Nick starts as general counsel of Chemco at the end of November. There are some things I haven't told you about Nick, and I'm very curious to hear your reaction to these. <laughs> Nick was licensed five or six years after Jane. He went to, you know, an okay law school, but not one as highly ranked as Jane's. He had fewer years in-house experience than she did. Jane clerked for a federal judge. He did not. And he never worked at any fancy law firm. He went straight in-house after law school, which Donna indicates in, in one of her depositions that she views law firms as like a necessary training ground for becoming in-house mm -hmm. counsel. How are we feeling about this? I mean, it's just ticking all the boxes of... I could have predicted exactly what you were going to say about Nick, that he's less experienced, less credentials, not that credentials matter that much in in-house work, but less in-house experience sure does. And fewer years practicing certainly do when it comes to what you've seen as a general counsel. My thought is there are a lot of credentials that don't ultimately matter. Law school, whether you clerked for a federal judge, whether you started out at a fancy law firm or not. They don't matter when it comes to the day-to-day -day of being a lawyer. I think they do matter if you're trying to defend a discrimination claim in yes. front of a jury. How do we think things go between Nick and Jane? Oh, God. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, Jane found out that she was being replaced by Nick and demoted. And to the extent she didn't know Nick's entire history, she immediately went home and Googled and pulled up a link on Nick, Nick on LinkedIn and compared their credentials, just like you said, and yep. their years of practice. And 
Jane knows. Like, Jane knows. She <laughs> handles the employment work for the yeah. company. Mm-hmm. Nick, on day one, goes to Jane's office. And he makes a big deal of this in his deposition. He's like, I made it a point on purpose to go into her office and not call her into mine. It's like, well, yes, thank you for not being an asshole about a very difficult situation for your subordinate. Yeah, like you didn't summon her to your office. How wonderful for you. (laughs) Thank you. But he does go to her office and he says, I know this can't be easy for you, but we're on the same team. I want you to be successful here. I don't really care about what happened before we start together today. Also, like, we have a lot of work to do. I have a lot of work, and I'm looking forward to working with you. And I think if I'm Jane, I plaster a big old smile on my face, and Mm -hmm. I say, absolutely, I've been acting GC. Let's get together and figure out what needs to be transitioned to you and what you want me to keep and what the division of labor is. Congratulations. I mean, it doesn't really matter how you're feeling on the inside. You suck it up, and you put that smile on your face, even if it's hard. Yeah, you play the game. I mean, you play the game. You smile, you say, oh, however I can be of assistance to you to transition these duties and historical knowledge you may need, just let me know. And you play the game. According to Nick, after he says this, Jane's like, hey, want some gum? And offers him (laughs) a blister pack of gum where some of the blisters were already open and one of them had her already chewed gum in it. (laughs) Okay. He goes, or you no, can do that. <laughs> he goes, no, thank you. <laughs> Even though internally he's like, that's disgusting. <laughs> he does also describe the gum offering as, quote, aggressive. <laughs> she like throw it at him, like frisbee the gum blister pack across her desk at him. <laughs> well, that's the thing. In his deposition, he's not really able to articulate what he means by aggressive. And I'm always sort of like, red flag, when you're going to describe yes. something that women do as aggressive. And then, like, how do you aggressively offer gum? Yes. <laughs> I don't understand. She didn't obsequiously offer me the gum. Ergo, it was aggressive. Right. She did not bow or curtsy. <laughs> yeah. She extended her chewed gum to me. <laughs> by mid-December, so several weeks after he starts, Nick is sending himself notes about conversations he's had with Jane, where she's basically pushing back on even transitioning work to him because she's like, well, I don't know what your experience is, so I can't tell you what we should move to you. Oh, jeez. <laughs> he also took issue with her cultural competency. Nick, for his previous employer's maybe even including this one, had spent quite a lot of time working in Japan with business executives in Japan and had familiarized himself with, I guess, Japanese-specific business protocols. Apparently, some executives from the conglomerate were visiting from Japan, and everybody's in a conference room, and Jane sat somewhere she shouldn't have. And according to Nick... There's kind of like this business card ceremony that should proceed sitting down where there's a way to pass your business cards out. And then the person at the top of the hierarchy is supposed to sit at the center of the table. And then the highest ranking people sit by them. And Nick says, when you're culturally sensitive to working with Japanese business people, you wait for someone to invite you to sit in a certain spot. Essentially, like they know what's going on. Yeah. So you just wait. You default and then they'll direct waiting. you yeah. to where you should sit. 
And according to Nick, Jane just kind of like comes in, doesn't do the whole business card thing and took a center seat that she normally would take, you know, if she were meeting with Americans. Yeah. And he's kind of like, oh, no, like we're going to this is not helpful for developing a relationship with our Japanese executives. We're not respecting their cultural norms. And to be clear, I don't know anything about whether Nick is correct about this or not. Like I'm just taking as accurate what he's testifying to. And then when Nick talks to her about this later, like, hey, we work very, very closely with executives from Japan and we need to be sensitive to what their norms and expectations are. Jane says something to the effect of, well, we're in America, not Japan. <laughs> they need to learn to speak American. <laughs> yeah, like, just, yeah, it's kind of like, why do you think that is going to help you be successful in developing your internal relationships? Yes. <laughs> Jane, Donna, the president, had complained frequently about Jane having difficulty in her relationships, being abrasive. So around this time, Jane is just having some off-the-wall emails with her internal clients. I think a lot of this is done with via email because she's working with people in Japan where, I mean, the time zones are basically completely Mm -hmm. reversed, right? So it's all asynchronous and you really have to do a lot of this via email if you're not going to be doing phone conferences at just really brutal times. An internal client had emailed Japan to tell her that his business unit was unhappy with the way she was handling a particular case. Here's Jane's response. I took over this case only a few months ago, and it's over a decade old. If you don't like the way it was handled, then please direct your comments to Donna, who managed it for the last 10 years. You asked for an explanation of the fees and an expectation for the coming years. This is what I gave you. Please do not continue to condemn my legal advice in such a public manner. It is unprofessional and nasty. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you and I are no stranger to difficult business clients having uh-huh. been in-house. Uh-huh. We have probably sent emails conveying the same message many times in our careers. I can almost guarantee, well, I know mine have never <laughs> read like that, and I can almost guarantee yours have never read like that, because I have had to convey that message before, but that's not the way you do it, and maintain a working business relationship with your clients. I would Never. Never. I cannot imagine (laughs) sending an email like this. And I do think this is one of the times where, despite the time difference, you have to pick up the phone and be like, hey, I'm so sorry to hear that you were unhappy Mm -hmm. with that. You know, you can always call me. You can always reach out to me. It seems like maybe some of these issues have to do with the previous counsel's handling of this. Here's what you can expect from me going forward. Or you send an email to that effect. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You you don't call them nasty and rude in an email. Yes. Nick and Jane also have a lot of other issues. Fast forward to early 2016, things between them are predictably going extremely poorly. According to Jane, they had a conversation in early 2016 about severance for a particular woman in the company. And the specific issue that Jane had was that they didn't want to give this woman any severance, but they had previously let go her husband several years earlier and they'd given him like a very tasty severance package. And Jane's basically like, look, there's no reason not to give her a severance. She knows her husband got a severance package. What's the difference? We're exposing ourselves to liability here. And Nick 
explains why he thinks this woman shouldn't be given any sort of separation. And Jane claims she told Nick, look, you're being sexist and I'm not going to help you paper this up. Like, I'm not doing something that I think is going to expose the company to allegations of sex discrimination. Less than a month later, Nick gives Jane a shitty performance review. Oh, no. (laughs) Said she needed to improve her ability to communicate in a respectful tone and manner and had other various complaints about her. So 2016 is not a great year for Nick and Jane's working relationship. What really blows everything up and brings this to a head is a lawsuit that Jane is managing that Chemco has filed. And I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here. This gets her fired in 2017. Okay. Jane was handling a breach of contract lawsuit between Chemco and another company. According to her, there's a settlement conference she's not allowed to go to because Chemco knew that the judge was male, outside counsel was male, and the client rep on the other side was male. So they want Nick to go. And they send Nick, despite the fact that she's been handling the case. She claims she complained to Nick, like, this is just evidence of the company's misogynist culture. And Nick just sort of nods and is like, "Uh, yeah. Chemco tells a different story. Chemco says someone in the business unit involved in the lawsuit emailed Nick to express concern about how Jane was handling litigation, including that she wasn't giving them regular updates. Then, several months later, Chemco got a settlement offer from the other party to the lawsuit. Jane told Nick about it, and she said she didn't want to settle for anything less than either $2.5 million, payable in two installments over six months, or $2 million immediately. So basically, like, we'll give you a $500,000 discount if you pay right now. The business unit wanted to propose $2.5 million. Several days later, in January 2017, Jane authorized outside counsel to make a settlement demand of $2.3 million, so $200,000 less than what was discussed with the business. (laughs) Yeah, thoughts, (laughs) comments. When you said she was fired over her handling of a lawsuit, I was thinking to myself, how? How does one get... I'm sure it happens. I've never heard of someone being fired from in-house counsel over handling litigation, but that's a good way to do it. Yes. (laughs) An unauthorized settlement is a good way to do it Yeah, for less than your client thinks they should get. Business person who complained to Nick did not find out about this settlement demand until sometime after the fact, after it's already been made, where I guess they were all on a call with outside counsel And outside counsel references having made the demand. (laughs) And the business person is like, wait, what? (laughs) What demand? Oh, my God. The business unit is pissed. As they should be. Oh, my God. Yeah. Culture varies a lot from company to company. But my perspective and my approach has always been I'd rather have my business partners involved in these decisions than not. Yeah. I mean, it's unfathomable to me to (laughs) accept or make an un- authorized settlement demand or acceptance. I Absolutely not. I can't even imagine it. So here's what blows me away. Jane sends an email to this business person who has complained and says, sorry, basically owning the screw up, but saying, well, I thought this was consistent with our approach. Like, I thought we'd be okay with this number. This business person writes back and basically says, hey, thanks. And then he actually says, Quote, I trust you, and I know that you do not do anything harmful to the client, but please understand there are many people who have negative feeling against that something happens in an unknown situation. I hope you know what I mean. Basically, I mean, people don't like being cut out of the loop. 
Yeah, that's exactly a very fair thing to say, especially when you're talking about two point three million dollars. Here's Jane's response. Oh, no. <laughs> Tomoji, I would appreciate it if you simply ask me directly if you have a problem or if someone else has a problem instead of going above me to Nick without copying me. In the U.S., it is what we call backstabbing. No. <laughs> my, my jaw literally dropped at that. <laughs> I think <Again>? she's a good... <laughs> She's a good example of, I would never, I think she's a great example of two things can be true at the same time. Someone can be a really crappy performer or cultural fit or have significant performance issues as an employee and also believe and or actually be discriminated against or something like that. Like two things can actually be true at the same time. It's a much harder case generally, but I think this is a great example of that. Well, you know, it did make me wonder because we don't have emails generally speaking about how this business is run, like day-to-day communications. I did Mm -hmm. wonder, is the problem her? Because she's been here, she's been at this company for such a long time at this point. You would think that if she had been sending sharp elbowed emails like this, that she would have been counseled on it at some point. Like, hey, you can't do Mm -hmm. this. So it did make me wonder, is the problem her? Or is it just that, like, this is just a really shitty internal environment where this is the way that people talk to each other at this company? Yeah, I don't know. Jane's story is, number one, the business person who complained is not the lead of the business unit, and he's not the person who is entitled to have been informed about this. The person who was supposed to be informed was informed Nick was involved in all of these conversations. Our bottom line was $2 million. Nick knew I was going to demand two point three. This is essentially all fabricated as a pretext for getting me out of the company. But Nick decides because of this, like, I'm going to fire Jane. And Donna, of course, is like, finally. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. In January 2017, a couple of weeks after this all happens with the settlement, they fire her. Nick reads a statement to her. Like he calls her into the office and reads a statement. This is like how you're making a face. This is is like this could be a course in how not to handle any of this. I was just thinking about this. I have one client in particular, and they do a great job with their HR, but I think they'd really enjoy this as kind of a training module for managers on what not to do when you're dealing with difficult employees. Nick reads a statement to her. I called you in to deliver the news today that today is your last day with us. As you know, you have a documented history of poor communication and a lack of judgment set forth in evaluations. You're already, you're already (laughs) pinching the bridge of your nose. (laughs) (laughs) I knew this would kill you. And I'm not, I'm not even close to done. Oh my God. (laughs) Buggle up. I worked very hard to provide you with guidance and feedback to assist you in overcoming these deficiencies. Unfortunately, the recent situation with the settlement demonstrates your judgment continues to be significantly impaired. Making an offer of settlement without the express authorization to do so was patently unethical. You worsened the situation by repeatedly failing to make me aware of the situation and repeatedly withholding information from the client. It wasn't until the client made me aware of their concerns did you then admit your wrongdoing. Your actions related to the settlement are emblematic of the persistent problems experienced with you in the legal department. The added layers of unethical and unprofessional conduct and a deliberate failure to disclose... You're pinching your nose again! (laughs) (laughs) 
the added layers of unethical and unprofessional conduct and a deliberate failure to disclose your actions makes your continued employment with us impossible. Any documents provided to you or prepared during your employment are proprietary to the company. I remind you of your ongoing legal and ethical obligations of confidentiality and attorney-client privilege. Pat will escort you to your, the HR, HR will escort you to your office to gather your personal belongings. Any personal belongings not removed today will be delivered to your home, at which time the delivery person will pick up all company property not returned to us today. You will be receiving COBRA paperwork in the mail and any questions can be directed to HR. Thoughts, go. On a scale of zero to 10, how would you rate this attempt? If she weren't going to file a charge of discrimination in a lawsuit, like this was the little kicker that pushed her over the edge. Like this is, it's not the worst termination I've ever heard, but when (laughs) it's terrible, it's terrible. Like you don't do that. That's not how you terminate an employee. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. You don't spell out and accuse them of wrongdoing and like tick off all the things you think they screwed up. And it's just like, we're separating your employment today. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, I don't know how many. I'm sure you've assisted. Not maybe not sat in, but assisted in a lot of terminations. I have lost count of the number I have. Yeah, and I've had to terminate people before. And you say, "I'm sorry, we're terminating your employment today." And then HR takes over, and it literally like you shouldn't say more than four lines as the manager in a termination. You don't rub salt in the wound and point out all of their personal and employment deficiencies. And HR's job is mostly just to tick the boxes on the practical housekeeping stuff that has to happen. Like I'm going to take, if they're being walked from the building that day, it's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to take you back to your cube. We're going to gather your stuff. Is there somebody you need to call to, to, to help you get home? Or are you okay to drive? Here's where to expect your Cobra. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're going to get here's, Cobra Here's a pamphlet you may need with information. Yes, like, yeah. mm-hmm. Here's contact me with any questions. I mean, it should be very short because people, situations like this, if we're going to get technical about it, situations like this activate your parasympathetic nervous system. And it's basically like if you've ever had the experience of going to a doctor's office and getting very bad news, there are lots of people who would tell you as soon as the doctor told me I had cancer, I couldn't hear literally anything else that they say. Mm -hmm. It's because your parasympathetic nervous system basically turns your ears off. And that's what happens to people when they hear news like this too. I mean, and then to add insult to injury about you have a lack of judgment, documented history of poor communication. Unethical. Unethical, (laughs) unprofessional. And then to say, by the way, I'm going to remind you that you are obligated to maintain confidentiality and attorney-client privilege to somebody who'd been practicing for almost 20 years at that point. I was about to say, who was the former general acting, former acting general counsel? That's so insulting. Just a terrible termination. And they walk her from the building same day. Oh my God. According to Nick, in that conversation, Jane tries to argue her side and is like, well, look, even if this was an ethical violation, no harm, no foul, because the client ultimately went along with it. He claims she also said, well, you know, you really screwed this up because I have a lot of work to do that you don't even know about. Jane's like, I mean, of course, Jane disputes that that happened. And she says, no, I didn't claim that there, I mean, number one, I dispute that there was an ethical violation because I did notify the client. I did have consent from the client. Nick knew that this was going to happen. And number two, I didn't like tell him I was hiding work. I basically told him I've been... Uh, assistant general counsel here, I have ongoing work and you're walking me from the building. Who's mm-hmm. going to like, how, who are we, how are we going to transition stuff? Which I do think is a little shocking 
to not do any sort of transition period for her work at all, even if it's a week or two weeks to give yeah. some amount of time to do the transition. But in any event, they walk her that day. They also terminate for her for cause, so they did not give her any severance. She files an unemployment claim, and they contested it. They fought back against it. Oh, my God. They fired her for cause. What? Okay. <laughs> and claimed she was not owed unemployment because she had been terminated for cause. Oh, my God. And I do have a thought that I'll interject here, which is, yes, you can certainly dispute somebody's entitlement to unemployment when you fire them for cause, but... The bar with unemployment agencies for getting unemployment is like extraordinarily low. And this is how you piss off people and how you generate lawsuits. Yeah, yeah, 100%. That's exactly what I was going to (laughs) say. Yes. I know it is irritating to pay unemployment to somebody that you think was a fuck up and that screwed you and maybe did something unprofessional or unethical. But boy, I bet that unemployment would have been way cheaper than this lawsuit. It's so much cheaper to pay the unemployment than it is to hire an attorney to defend you in a lawsuit. I yes, it's, this company has acted very foolishly. What what is it? Penny Pennywise, pound penny foolish. wise and pound foolish. Yeah. That's what they're doing. So many different places. Yes, <laughs> and my understanding is they didn't offer her severance. I mean, number one, they did think that she'd done something unethical, but again, surprise, surprise, they didn't want to spend the money on it. Yes. And I think they probably could have offered her something that would have been cheaper than this. Jane shockingly files her lawsuit for gender discrimination against Chemco at the beginning of September 2018. She also sues Nick and Donna personally. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And one of the things she does is she tries to place her termination in a broader context. And again, I haven't validated these claims myself. This is just what Jane is claiming about her experience with Chemco According to her, women in Japan on average earn 25 to 30% less than their male counterparts. And she says, with respect to Chemco in particular, although this conglomerate employs tens of thousands of employees, there are virtually no women in executive management. And she claims that until 2016, there wasn't a single woman in executive management worldwide, including subs and affiliates. And Donna is one of the first to break through Mm -hmm into executive management ranks. Jane claims that at the time Donna promoted Jane to acting general counsel, Donna even told Jane, look, you're never going to make it to full GC. This decision was made in Japan and I can't get you through Japanese management. Jane also claims that over the years, Donna had uh, made multiple comments basically about the rampant sexism and misogyny at the company and that Donna said, She knew others at the company believed she'd only made it up the ladder by sleeping with high-level Japanese male executives, but that this made her somewhat impervious because nobody thought they could, like, touch her because she might have these relationships, these intimate relationships with male executives in Japan. I've never heard someone spin a silver lining at those accusations. (laughs) That's one way to look at it. Uh, Exactly. I guess there's there's your silver lining. (laughs) This litigation toddles along for several years. There's your typical wrangling over whether the lawsuit should be dismissed. It obviously wasn't. Lots of discovery, lots of depositions. I think it also gets delayed somewhat because in the interim, COVID hits. Then something happens at Jane's deposition in June 2021. So this case has been going on for three years at this point, almost. Way before this point, she's supposed to have turned over everything she has that's relevant to her Mm -hmm. claims, right? To Chemco's lawyers, good or bad. Mm -hmm. 
that's part of your job if you're going to sue people or be sued. It's just party of lawsuit kind of things you have to do. During the first day of Jane's deposition, Kemco's lawyer asks her a question along the lines of, well, do you have any anything written that would substantiate the claims and allegations you're making here today? And Jane goes, actually, I just found some notes that I took while I was at Kemco tucked away in a drawer in my home office. Surprise! I was just about to say, <laughs> oh, surprise! <laughs> So Kemco's lawyer, of course, demands the notes, and Jane's lawyer sends them over that evening. I'm curious in your reaction. I was very surprised by this because Jane handled the bulk of employment work at Kemco. She's no stranger to litigation. Producing documents, turning them over is a key responsibility for lawsuit parties, especially if you were the one who filed the lawsuit in the first place. Courts can really drop the hammer on you. So you'd think that having all of this knowledge, you would be extra super duper careful in your search to make sure you got everything. Uh, Yeah. The next day of her deposition, Kemco's counsel asks her about why these notes weren't turned over earlier, years earlier. And Jane's like, oh, I don't know. I found them in another part of my bedroom office. No, (laughs) no. I mean, (laughs) maybe you can, I mean, I understand there are probably, it's like you said, there are plaintiffs where that could be true. That. I would be a lawyer, a lawyer, a lawyer who handles employment litigation. No. (laughs) Among the notes she's turned over during her deposition is a maybe kind of smoking gun. It is a handwritten note supposedly from March 2016 called notes after meeting with Nick. And it supposedly documents that conversation Jane had with Nick about the severance package for the female employee. And in the note, Jane says Nick told her how he wanted the no severance decision documented. She refused because she thought it was inaccurate and essentially incorrect. Quote, I told Nick I was not in the business of spinning or manufacturing things for this or any other company who are potentially violating the law and discriminating against women. I told him that was not my job. I told him this is discrimination. He changed the subject and refused to discuss it further. I fear he is angry with me for not going along with him and for calling out the discrimination. He may retaliate against me. (laughs) I was about about to make a joke that's like, and then is she like, I fear retaliation may be next. (laughs) Kemco understandably is like, what the fuck? (laughs) You're Kemco. What do you do here? Oh, I want to know all about these notes. I I have a full deposition with her just on the when these notes were created and all about them. And I want to know why they were just turned over now. Yeah. And I want to know, you say you found them in the drawer of your, like, tell me about your office. Yeah. Describe every single stick of furniture in your office. Describe what your practice was related to keeping your notes. I mean, did you normally just shove attorney-client privileged confidential conversations in Back drawers? Are there any other confidential? Uh, I was about to say, what other smoking guns that that right. uh, prove every element of your case are huddled away in your desk drawers? Kemco goes ham. They hire a forensic ink chemist expert to analyze the note <laughs> and see if he can figure out when it was written. I mean, full CSI. This is hilarious. They're like, it was a V5 pen and those were version <laughs> six and those were created in 2017. I know. It's like, <laughs> what are they? It's like tire tread marks for pens. Yes. <laughs> so this forensic ink chemist expert 
has testified over 100 times in court proceedings about document analyses and dating. He was the chief research forensic chemist in the Forensic Services Division of the U.S. Secret Service. I mean, basically, Chemco decides we're going to burn your house down if we Mm -hmm. can. No stone unturned. The expert produces an entire written report based on his laboratory study (laughs) of the physical. I mean, they make Jane turn over like the physical paper that she wrote the notes Mm -hmm. on. They're like, I don't want a Xerox copy. I want the paper. He gets this, takes it back to his lab. (laughs) He looks at the note under a microscope. He measures the volatile organic compounds, the VOCs, in the inks on the note. Oh, my God. He tests pieces of the note in hot and cold conditions to see how quickly the VOCs evaporate. Because apparently the more VOCs that evaporate, the fresher the ink is. He does an optical analysis with infrared lighting. I mean, again, this is the full CSI treatment on this note (laughs) for a sex discrimination case. I've never heard of this. It's wonderful. (laughs) That's what caught my eye about this case originally. I was like, what do you mean they hired an ink forensic analyst? Because I would have been like, well, I guess we'll move for sanctions based on how late this nose was produced and argue that it should be precluded from being presented to the jury. I don't, I don't think I would have, and especially for a company that has been so cheap about this whole thing, they were so cheap in the employment decisions that they made. You're telling me this forensic expert was less than, I don't know, hiring a recruiting company to find an external GC candidate, giving Jane (laughs) probably less than her severance, but just crazy. Well, look at it, though, because now their ego is hurt. And so no amount of money is too much when your ego is at stake versus making a wise financial decision to hire a recruiter. This expert concludes that the note was probably created sometime within the last six months, and certainly within the last two years. So likely sometime in 2021, certainly after July 2019, and well after she filed the lawsuit, let alone when she claims to have had this 2016 discussion with Nick. Also, as I mentioned, the note is dated March 1, 2016. The entire note is written in black ink, but this expert determines that the ink used to write the date at the top of the note is different than the black ink used to write the body of the note. So I gather we're supposed to conclude that she wrote the note sometime after the litigation started and then came back and put the Mm -hmm. March 1, 2016 date at the top of it. Chemco first sends the expert's report to Jane's lawyer and basically tells them, you guys need to withdraw your case. Just drop it. Walk away. Mm. And Jane's lawyers say, no, thank you. (laughs) So in October 2021, Chemco files a motion for sanctions in federal court, and they ask the court to dismiss Jane's whole case because they claim she fabricated this note, she backdated it to make it falsely appear like it had been written in 2016, and then she lied under oath when she claimed the note was from 2016. One thing that I just loved is Jane's lawyers, and Chemco makes a really big deal out of this, they're like, they never hired an expert to prove that her note was written in 2016. Jane's lawyers are like, we're not spending that money, we're plaintiff's attorneys. You guys spend money on experts, not us. (laughs) Like she did, she deposed she in her deposition. She said it was good enough for us. Yeah, works for us. There's <laughs> yeah. our evidence. So for their part, Jane's lawyers tell the court, "Look, first of all, she didn't fake anything. This is real. Second, this so-called expert report is total bullshit. Ink dating isn't even a thing. <laughs> There's no settled science. There are no objective standards." 
this isn't like, like how do you da bear analysis and ink forensic rapport? <laughs> <laughs> There's no settled science. There are no objective standards. There's a ton of disagreement, even among supposed forensic professionals, about what techniques you're supposed to use. There are very few labs that do this analysis, and every lab does it a different way. Basically, this is a guy who's managed to make a name for himself and become a professional paid expert. Because Mm -hmm. we know, I mean, experts get paid to testify. They get paid to make these reports. And you do have a lot of experts who they get hooked up with one lawyer and they end up working on a bunch of that person's cases. And it's a good way to make money. I mean, it can be very lucrative to do stuff like this. Jane's lawyers also criticize the techniques that he used. Supposedly, one of the techniques can't be used to even date inks that are over six months old. And apparently no ink forensic expert's opinion has ever survived a challenge in federal court. (laughs) Then, and I loved this. So remember I said the expert looked at how fast these VOCs evaporated Mm -hmm. as a sign of what its age was. Jane's lawyers get very practical about this. They say, look, that's also BS because this note was stored in the back of a desk drawer with a bunch of other papers. I was and not this guy to things. I, right. This guy didn't account for that fact. It wasn't sitting out just like on your Emitting kitchen counter. VOCs. Yeah. yeah, just evaporating VOCs. So that probably slowed the rate at which the VOCs evaporated. Therefore, his opinion is bullshit. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. <laughs> Did you have a desk in your lab for multiple years? Uh, Do we think Jane should be worried? I think at a minimum, even even if you throw out this expert's report, if I'm Jane, I'm worried about what the judge is thinking about me as a lawyer attempting to submit this evidence. How do you think the court responds? My guess is going to be the court looks askance at the expert's report, but is certainly is going to be super troubled by the fact that this note just appears out of thin air. That's my guess. First of all, the court takes almost a year to rule on this motion. Mm -hmm. So the court is in no hurry to figure this (laughs) issue out about your stupid note. The clerk's got this, these motions and responses and they're like, well, uh, not today. I mean, this is August 2022 in the Southern District of New York. And I think everybody's just like, we're, I mean, everybody's been through COVID. We've been through multiple shutdowns. We're tired. Okay. It's August. Like everybody's at the beach in August. Yeah. When the court finally does rule, after all of this briefing, after hiring experts and doing VOC and infrared CSI tests, this is barely a five page order. And the court is basically like, nah, look takes a lot to get a case dismissed as punishment for wrongdoing and litigation. This ain't it. Even if she did forge this note and lie in her deposition, it's basically isolated instances of misconduct. And I'm not even convinced that this note is important. It might not even be admissible at trial. So who cares? <laughs> That's a lot <laughs> Which, of money that Kimco spent for a who cares order. <laughs> to get a judge that's like, I don't know. Do I care? Not sure. <laughs> and I was really surprised because you've got an attorney who's accused of misconduct. It really sums up how litigation is such a crapshoot. Like you could yeah. have a judge that looks at that and is like, I'm referring her to the bar and right. I want her license suspended. Or you could get a judge that's like, fuck it, whatever. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Kemco had also asked the court to require Jane to pay its attorney's fees as punishment for this misconduct. And the court basically punts there too. And is like, look, 
I'll consider it after summary judgment or trial when there's more information on whether this note is forged or if that even matters to us. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, get this fucking case out of my courtroom is basically the message. <laughs> Maybe you guys work this out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's where the case stands today. Chemco filed its motion for summary judgment basically saying, hey, judge, you should rule for us on all of our claims without us having to go for trial. Briefing on that's not going to be done until later this month. And I think based on our evidence issue with the forged note, we can expect the judge probably is not going to be in a hurry to rule on summary judgment. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's a trial date. But I will be paying attention to this because I'm very curious to see what happens here. And I actually, I kind of think she might survive summary judgment and go to trial. I was literally just about to say, I mean, based on my experience, this sure seems like a case that has a strong chance of surviving summary judgment. Like if ever there were a fact issue, even disregarding the stupid note, this seems like a, a messy enough case that it would survive summary judgment. Yeah. And I don't know that I'd really want to take this case to trial if I were Kimco. No. I mean, if I were at Kimco's in-house counsel, God forbid, but if I were evaluating this, I would evaluate it as a case that survives summary judgment. Yeah. Like we're going to trial and we've already mm -hmm. spent so much money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Stupid amounts of money on this. Jane appears not to be working as an attorney anymore. She's still licensed, but for the last few years, she's been working as a real estate agent. Apparently her mom is a quote, 50 year real estate icon. In oh. a New York City suburb where Jane and her mom live. So Jane joined her mom in the family business and has apparently won multiple awards within her real estate company. And Good has, for Jane. She has review after glowing review from her customers on her website. So good for her. Good for Jane. Jane is getting her bag and not as a lawyer. So good yeah. for Jane. <laughs> And then we'll see if she gets her bag from this company. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I think it's interesting because there's so often with litigation, and you know this too, like so often there's no like satisfying conclusion to what mm -hmm. you want to happen. But we've talked about it before. You know, litigation is a very imperfect way to solve problems and to resolve disputes. And I think this is a great example of you certainly hope something ends a certain way, but with litigation, nine times out of 10, it's not going to be something nearly as satisfying as you want it to be. Yeah. I think there's also just a lot to be learned here about how penny pinching can be extraordinarily expensive. Oh, yeah. There's so I many points at which we didn't have to be here today. I cannot... They have... Chemco has two very expensive law firms representing them. I forget what the second firm is. And to get to this point, to get to summary judgment briefing, they've had other experts that they've had to hire about her earning capacity, basically to try and fight back against her claim that she should be entitled to a lot of money for them for lost wages. They've spent so much money on this. This is such oh, yeah. a, a costly outcome for just trying to be cheap, doing cheap stuff. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And it's a lesson in good management of employees requires... <laughs> not succumbing to your ego and wanting to terminate someone by providing them a litany of all the reasons they failed as a person and an employee and not rubbing salt in the wound. And sometimes you just have to take the bigger step and just say, we're terminating your employment today. Best of luck to you in your future endeavors. Goodbye. Yeah. The other thing that I didn't touch on is Chemco, like all other large companies, has internal discipline, like verbal warnings, written warnings, and of course, they didn't do any of that with her. 
mm-hmm. I know that's a challenge with professionals because it feels very insulting. I mean, if I were ever given a written warning as a lawyer, I'd be like, well, fuck this. I'm out. Like, you can't just yeah. have a conversation I, with me about what the I issue is. I flinched get- at the idea of it. Like, absolutely No, it's, it's awful. Yeah. But the problem <laughs> is they have these processes. They did not follow them related to her. They just put shitty stuff in her performance reviews, which is categorically mm-hmm. the wrong way to go about it <laughs> and doesn't include the normal documentation. And so I don't think that plays well with regular people who are going to be your audience on a jury. Yeah, exactly. And who so. have these lived experiences, probably not unsimilar to this yes. at this point or know someone who has. And so right. you always have to be thinking about that if you have good in-house counsel. <laughs> <laughs> So that's that. Best of luck to Jane. I will, if there's an update on this in the future and we are still, people are still letting us do this podcast. uh, (laughs) We haven't been shamed into hiding. Yes. (laughs) I will definitely update everybody on what happens here. Well, thank you, KP. That was was exciting. I had remembered when you first tweeted about that as you talked about it. So I'm very glad that we got a good deep dive in it because you don't often get a lawyer accused of making up evidence in their own case. No, that doesn't happen that often. Yeah. No. (laughs) Well, thank you guys for our next episode. I'm going to be taking the lead on a recent bankruptcy order about some (laughs) terrible malfeasance that a bankruptcy lawyer engaged in, in a case. And it's very recent, just came out and it's extremely entertaining. So we'll be deep diving into that for our next episode. All right. Sounds good. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter at BadLawyerPod. And you can leave us a fantastic review. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Bye.